Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we come to you this morning knowing that you're bigger than us. And knowing that you're better than us. And you love us, and that's a neat thing. It's a cool thought. It's my bigger and better is okay with hanging out with somebody smaller and worse. Father, we thank you for that. And yet we make sense of the whole of it through this holiday, the Friday that recognizes the crucifying of the God-man Jesus and the silent Saturday finished up by the exultant, glorious Sunday where you are back alive. Father, that demonstrates to us power, victory, love, forgiveness, and mercy. And there's where we meet the one bigger and better than us. And yet we're humbled by it, and yet we are so happy about it that we can know you. And Father, we come to you now asking that you would work in our hearts and lives. But Father, we don't want it to be just for us. We want it to be for those around us. And it's at this time, Father, that we pray for those around us. God, I pray for the communities here in South Louisville. I pray that people would know you, and I pray that families would know you. God, I pray that you, by the power of your working in hearts and lives, that you would raise up men that want to be men and dads and husbands, and love well, serve well, and teach well, sacrifice themselves, lay down their lives for those around them. God, I pray for the women in our communities, that they would be upright, godly women, that they would love their husbands and love their children and give of themselves, that you would create in them a love for you. God, I pray that out of those two that you would create families and strong families and committed families that will know you and love you and serve you. Father, we pray for our young people. We thank you so much, God, that here in Fairdale, especially in the midst of South Louisville, Father, that it has become our burden, especially the burden of First Baptist Fairdale, God, that young people all over the place would have hope and a future, that they would know you, know you in a real way, God, we pray for the schools that surround us. We pray for Coral Ridge Elementary School and Fairdale Elementary School and Fairdale High School and Lassiter Middle School and the many, many others that are just right around us, God, and all of the schools in South Louisville, for it makes up thousands and thousands of kids just right here. We pray for them. We pray, God, that they would know you. We pray, God, that you would use us to help them know you. We pray that you would use our church and our people and our kids and our relationships and our serving and our giving, although we know it's not very much, we pray that you would use us. Father, we're not here today so that all we could do is be here today. We're not here today, God, hoping that we could stay here all day today or, or all week. We're here today to worship you so that we might be filled up and empowered to go and Help more people know you. And Father, we ask that through the word today, the preaching of your word as we look to it, that you would do that. God, we're dependent upon you for you're bigger than better than us. We admit that and we humble ourselves now. We pray that you would work today for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you would, turn in the Bible to John chapter 20. John chapter 
20. If you didn't bring a Bible, it's page 1,000 in the pew Bible there, the black Bible that is in the pew. It's page 1,000, John chapter 20. We're gonna look at just a few verses. We started doing that several weeks ago before every sermon. A different pastor will come up and pray for uh, something going on in the community, and it's our heart and burden that, that people, men and women and families, and especially young people, uh, would find out the truth, would come to know the Lord Jesus and have their lives uh, turned around for God's sake and for their good. That's our burden. And we want to work toward that end as a church, not so much focusing on here and this property and this place, but outside of here, how can we give of ourselves? But in praying that God is bigger and better than us, there is a real confession that life is really hard and we're not very good at what we desire to be good at. We have dreams and we have wishes and we have hopes that all this awesome stuff would happen, but we find ourselves getting in the way most of the time, and life is really hard. And the more and more I read the Bible, which is uh, quite a bit, I find out that it's a hard life that we live. And the more and more I live my life, which quickly is passing by very quickly, um, I realize that this life is hard. And so we find ourselves living in the midst of desiring one thing and then being met with the kind of crushing, humbling reality of another. We wish we were this type of people, but often we're not. We wish we were this type of marriage or husband or wife or man or woman or dad or mom, and yet often we're not. I wish I was nicer, but often I'm not. I wish I was more thoughtful, but often I'm not. And so our realities are, are often met with an inconsistency of whether what we should be and what we are, what we wish we were, could be and what we are. Trying to make sense of all of that is a little bit tough. A few years ago, when Val and I only had two kids, we were at a wedding that I did. I've told this story before, but I want to tell it again because it, it kind of paints this picture. We were there and having a good time, and I, I did the wedding, and we were at the reception afterward having a good old time, and people were dancing, and I wasn't, but people were, and uh, we had our kids there, and you know, when the, when the minister's doing the service and all that, it's a lot of pressure on the, on the wife, and so Val's trying to take care of the kids, and that's stressful, so we get to the reception, I kind of think, I'll, I'll take over, and Val can kind of chill out a little bit, and that's what we're doing, and one of our boys say you need to go to the bathroom. And let me remind you, at a wedding, you're kind of decked out. I was in a tux. I was kind of feeling myself a little bit. And Val looked beautiful as ever. And you know, that's how it goes when you dress up. You don't get to dress up too much. And we're doing all that. And we're at, we're at the wedding. And my boy needed to go to the bathroom. So we go to the bathroom and had to change his diaper. And I'm okay with changing diapers. And we get in there and I realized we didn't have any wipes. It was a dirty diaper, and so I lay him up on the sink, and I figure out how I'm going to do this, and if you've ever done that before, you're like balancing him on the sink, hoping that he doesn't roll off, and I'm running over here to the paper towels, grabbing paper towels, getting them wet, running back, and paper towels aren't very good wipes to begin with, uh, and I'm trying to do that, and that's, that's really hard, and try to do all of that. Make a long story short, that was pretty stressful, and uh, after, actually, before I even did that, I had told him to stand still while I ran outside and tried to wave down Val in the reception. It didn't work, so I came back in, and then I went to the paper towels. After all of that, which was pretty stressful, trying not to get ourselves dirty, I set him down to wash my hands. And I'm washing my hands there, and when I turn around, he's over there in the urinal playing with that little blue thing. 
the thing that's an effort to make it smell better. And that's dirtier than anything. And you know, it's in a moment like that where you just think, this is hard. This is really, really hard. All I wanted to do was change a diaper. I feel so frustrated. I feel so bad at this. So your natural thought as the husband is to think, Val, you should have done that. You can't send me to do that. And then I'm exasperated. And if we're resorting back to that, then now I'm not ever offering her any, any help or relief. And you know, all these feelings come over of, you know, life is hard and I'm frustrated. When I realize how frustrated I get at life, it, it honestly moves me toward, I need help. I don't know if I'll admit that or not. I don't know if you'll admit that or not. But I need help. It's too hard for me to be good at it all the time. It's too hard for me to be good at it in the way that I should be, and so I need help. And God tells me that that's exactly where he wants us to be. God wants you or I to admit that we need help. He wants us to be able to say, this is hard. I'm not as good at it as I would like to be. It doesn't go the way I want it to at times. Sometimes it's out of my control. Sometimes it's simply my fault. But I need help. Obviously, it takes some real humility and some brokenness to admit that. But that's where God wants us to be. Post-resurrection, we find Jesus' followers and the disciples in that very position. Jesus had been on the scene for some three years. He was born of a virgin, raised up, and we really know nothing about him for 30 years. But at around 30, Jesus comes on the scene and is now ministering, and he really only ministered for three years. And in those three years, he taught, he served, he loved. He's just a fascinating, fascinating study. There is no biography in the world as amazing and interesting as Jesus' biography in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you've never read it, I encourage you to just sit down and read Matthew or Mark or Luke or John and hear about what Jesus' life was, you will be taken back, and I assure you, it will be more compelling to you than what you have heard. Jesus had loved and taught and explained the word of God. He taught like nobody ever taught. He treated far out, uh, troublesome people like nobody ever had. He had this kind of riff. Listen, he had this kind of riff in his life that always ran against the arrogant, the religious, the the uppity. He was always uh, grinding at them, wanting them to know, don't you think you've got it all figured out? He was constantly rubbing them wrong that way in a good, holy way. And you know, you kind of like that about how he did that. then, without deserving it at all, they had had enough of Jesus, and so they said, we're going to get rid of him. He's messing up things. He's messing up our lives. Let's get rid of him, and so they planned to kill him. It was a good plan. They found one of his followers, and they paid him off. They got him for a certain amount of money to trick them, and hey, wherever Jesus prays at night when he seems to be vulnerable, will you lead us there? And Judas said he would do that for 30 pieces of silver. He took that deal, took the money, and then became a snitch on Jesus and led them, an army of soldiers, it tells us, with torches, lanterns, and weapons in the middle of the night as our Savior was on his knees praying, this guy Judas... Two-faced Judas 
walks up, kisses Jesus, and as he turns around, winks at the bad guy and says, yeah, that's him. They take Jesus, they arrest him. They beat him, they flog him. They figure out a way for him to be murdered, crucified, done away with. And on that Friday, that original Good Friday, our Lord was crucified to a cross. God himself in the flesh, the God-man, was crucified to a cross. They took three nails and they hung him out. They crossed his legs over, one nail here, one nail here, and one nail through both legs and nailed him to the cross where he hung in humiliation that day and died not deserving to. And if that's all you know of the story, you think, that's awful, and I hate that. Except for the Bible tells us even more about it. It tells us that, and it tells us more. It tells us that behind what these evil people were doing and behind what they were doing was a greater plan of God working inside what they were doing that was defined and even somewhat moved by the great love of God. That this was happening because of God's love because God says there is no other way for you and I to figure it out. There's no other way for you and I to be made whole. There's no other way for you and I to be forgiven of our sins and finally admit I need help. But when you understand that the God who's bigger and better than you loves you and did all that for you and is not trying to drive you away, is welcoming you in, you in all of your goodness and, 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 and humility and brokenness will or should say, I need help, God. Help me. Forgive me. They buried Christ, and three days later on that Sunday morning, he had emptied the tomb. And as Pastor Aaron Harvey at Highview Baptist Church says, if the tomb is empty, then you shouldn't be. Isn't that a good thought? If the tomb is empty, then you shouldn't be. Well, empty is feeling like you're weak and you need help, but trying so hard not to admit it. That's an empty feeling. Empty is trying to put your best foot forward and your best face forward and act like it ain't that bad, but as soon as you're out of sight of every single person, admitting to yourself in that fight and struggle, I need help, but I can't let anybody know it, and I certainly won't admit it to God. That's empty, and I've been there. But if the tomb is empty, that Jesus died for us. He didn't die uh, because he needed to die. He died for us in love, and God raised him up. And if that happened, then what God is showing, that God can be believed, God can be trusted. God is the best, the biggest, the strongest, the surest, the most certain. And we should not only admit that we need help, but we should run to him in saying, God, help me. In our passage today, John chapter 20, we're going to start at verse 19. It shows us where the disciples were on that Sunday morning before they know that he had risen from the grave. John chapter 20 begins with the resurrection. You have Mary there. She sees it. She finds the empty tomb. Then she takes off running to go tell the disciples. But we're going to start at verse 19. The disciples don't know yet. Here's what the Bible says. On the evening of that day, 
The first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. For the last three years, Jesus had been leading around these 12 guys, investing his whole life in them. It's like the coolest internship you've ever heard of. Jesus found those 12 guys in the midst of their careers and occupations. And when he found them, he said, come follow me. And the Bible says they left everything and they followed him. For three years, they've been with him basically all day, nonstop, day and night, watching his every move, how he treated people, how he dealt with conflict, what he said, how he loved, how he forgave, when he modeled patience, and most importantly, his very, very close relationship with the Father in heaven. They knew that this guy was God, and they knew that this guy was the coming king, but they had not put all the pieces together so that when he died, they were shook. They didn't know how to handle it. They were struggling to comprehend and process what was happening. So when we pick up our passage here, they're literally in this room with the doors locked, scared. It says here, for fear of the Jews, they were locked there. Jesus shows up without a key, without knocking, he's just in the room. He's not a ghost, he's God. If you don't believe in God, only a ghost could do that. But God can do whatever he wants. He's done much bigger things. He just shows up in the room. I don't necessarily know if he like swooped through the door or if he went underneath or if he just kind of appeared. I don't know how it happened, but he was there without a key through the door. He just showed up and he says, peace. And he begins to make everything make sense. See, when we start looking at the cross and work of Christ, when we really start to take in Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday, we'll start to understand life. We have a lot of cool books that we read to the kids, and there's a lot of good kids' Bibles out there. I would love to recommend several to you all. This is one of our favorites. Now, this is not actually a kid's Bible. It's like a kid's book that explains the Bible, a little bit different. It's by Kevin DeYoung. It's called The Biggest Story. It's good enough that you could sit down and read it in one setting, and I want to read this to you. It's talking about how Jesus is ultimately coming back to crush Satan in all that he's doing. And he's called the snake crusher because in the beginning of the Bible, it's the snake that leads God's people into sin. You may know that. I'm going to read you a couple pages. It says, the biggest surprise to everyone was that the chosen one of God was chosen by God to die. It just didn't seem right that the one destined to crush the serpent would be crushed himself. So when Jesus the Christ The son of the living God died on the cross that Friday afternoon. It seemed a shocking evil beyond belief. And it was the worst thing that's ever happened in the world. The crucifying of Jesus. But it was also the best thing that's ever happened in the world. Just as we would expect from God and just as God planned it. We break promises so God keeps his. We run from God, so he runs to us. We suffer for sin, so the Savior suffers 
for us. Our story is the story of God doing what we can't in order to make up for us doing what we shouldn't. The Christ suffers for our sin that we might share in his sinlessness. When those guys are hiding in that locked room and Jesus shows up, here's what he says. Peace be with you. Peace is a hard subject these days, is it not? Peaceful protest, peace signs, peace. We hear a lot about peace these days. But I'll tell you what, I don't see a lot of peace. I don't see a lot of peace. You know, we don't see a lot of peace in the world, but I'm not even talking about the world. I don't see a lot of peace in hearts. I don't see a lot of peace in individuals. Jesus comes saying, peace be with you. God wants us to know this April 21st, right here in Fairdale, Kentucky this morning, that he gives peace. Yesterday was the 20-year anniversary of Columbine. You remember that? 20-year anniversary right here in the United States of America where students went and killed 13. Last month, at Muslim mosques in Christchurch, Australia, New Zealand, 50 were murdered for being in worship. 50 Muslims murdered. Senseless evil should not have happened. They don't deserve to die. This morning... This morning, in Sri Lanka, Asia, Christians worshiping for Easter, over 200 bombed and killed. Doesn't matter if it's a school here, doesn't matter if it's a Muslims there, doesn't matter if it's Christians there, doesn't matter who it is, there's not a lot of peace. And if I could have a group discussion right now on what your thoughts are about what I just said, you would definitely see lack of peace, amen? You know we would. We struggle to know what peace is. And while every one of you have your opinion on what peace is, I want to let you know it is only found in Jesus. I'll take it to the grave. I'll give my whole life to it. I carry my Bible in my back pocket to every school I get to go to that I could preach to every team in every locker room that they might find Jesus. There will be no peace apart from Jesus. Billy Graham says, when everyone does what is right in his own eyes, there is no possibility of peace. Think about that. When everyone does their best, they're good in his own eyes. There is no possibility of peace. What a thought. For peace is only found in Jesus. Billy Graham would go on to say, for the Christian, peace is not simply the absence of conflict or any other critical or artificial state the world has to offer. Rather, it is the deep, abiding peace only Jesus Christ brings to the heart. 
Now, I realize that everybody in here is, is, is wondering whether you agree or not. I, I totally understand that. I'm prepared for you guys to come to church on a Sunday morning and question and examine whether you agree with me or not. But in our final few minutes here this morning, I want to beg you to consider that this might be the truth, that this might be the case, that it is after Christ has overcome the worst things in the world. You have the Jews wanting him dead because of religious reasons. They don't like what he says about God. And you have the Romans wanting him dead because of political, secular, governmental reasons. They don't like the issue. They don't like dealing with it. And so they will be willing to kill him too. Two totally different subjects in our world. We got a secular, political, government reason to kill God. And we got a religious reason to kill God. Is that not the farthest thing from peace? And it's about the prince of peace. And so they want to kill him. And it's after that that Jesus comes back to his afraid followers hiding out and says, peace be with you. When Jesus starts talking about peace, we ought to listen. He knows what he's talking about. I want to give you three points from this passage on peace. Number one, God's peace brings composure in the midst of trouble. God's peace brings composure in the midst of trouble. You know what composure is, right? Composure is keeping it together, holding it up, right? Good parenting wants us to think that if we do enough, our kids will have composure. <clears throat> Ain't gonna work. God's peace through Jesus Christ brings composure in the midst of trouble. Have y'all ever heard somebody say, I didn't raise them like that? Only Jesus can bring peace that will bring composure in the midst of trouble. Notice what's happening right here. They are locked up hiding. Notice. They are locked up hiding. They don't know what's going on. They've been invested three years in something. That is so embarrassing. Isn't that so shameful? For three years, they've been walking around saying, man, he's the Lord. He's the Savior. He's the truth. Man, I found what I'm looking for. Man, his word is true. I love these Bible studies. Let's sing together. I saw him feed the hungry. I've seen him do this. I mean, this guy's the thing, and now he's gone dead and buried. They were messed up. They didn't know what was going on. It was in the midst of trouble, and guess what shows up right there? Him. See, every one of us are in the midst of trouble somewhat. Don't get me wrong, a lot of y'all have really, really nice lives, and so for the most part, you got it together, but there's some trouble. It may be just trouble on the inside, maybe trouble up here, trouble down there, maybe trouble somewhere, but the only thing that will bring composure to your life is Jesus. You ever heard the illustration of a duck? I mean, don't you like a duck when they're swimming on top of the water, just looks awesome, just floating all peaceful and everything looks great. They really don't even move, they just look great, they're just gliding along on the water. Doesn't that look great? See a duck? Now you've never been able to see what's going on under the water, but you know what's going on under the water? Serious. I mean, that's that's the duck's that's the way a duck is seen. You see what's going on top, just so awesome. Right? We talk about a swan, oh, it's just so peaceful. You know what's going on under the water? Non-stop, but you can't see it. You know what I'm telling you happens inside of the Christian life? Not me doing like this on the inside. Jesus doing that on the inside. Now, if you're here wondering if that's not true, then just hear me out. I'm telling you it's true. 
Jesus does that. I know people with composure. We see him doing it here in the midst of a messed up situation where both the religious and the political wanted to kill him and get rid of him. So they did. He's back saying, peace, peace be with you. He calms them down. He's about to build them up. It's amazing. It's Jesus. It's God working. Josh Womble read it a few minutes ago. Listen to this. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, meaning made right by God, and we believe that what he did makes us into a right relationship with God, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace comes through Jesus. Number two, not just composure in the midst of trouble, but number two, confidence in the midst of fear. Confidence in the midst of fear. Notice what happens. The doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. They were afraid of the Jews. I mean, here's your thinking. They came and killed him. They're coming to kill us. You know what we're getting in the mail all the time here? We just got another couple this week. Conferences for, you know what? Church security, you ever heard of one? Church security conferences are going on now. You don't need me to tell you why. You don't need me to tell you why. There are bulletins being sent, programs being sent for church security conferences. Why? Because everybody's scared. How do we get our fears overcome? Other than that cheap, shallow guy who sticks out his chest and say, I ain't scared of nobody. If you're not scared of God, you better brace yourself. If you're not afraid of anybody, not even God, listen. He is the only thing that you should fear. And in fearing him, he will give you confidence to not fear anything else. He fuels the right type of fear, and that fear fuels the right type of confidence. Notice that it is with that fear that he says to them, peace be with you. So look what happens in verse 20. A fascinating verse. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Can you imagine how much confidence you got from that? Can you imagine Jesus coming over and saying, come here guys, peace be with you. And Jesus going, look at that right there, look at that scar. You remember when y'all were scared today? You know why you're hiding in here? Because you saw them whoop me. You saw them destroy me. Can you imagine when Jesus pulled up his shirt and showed his rib that had been speared where he had stabbed him on the cross to prove that he was dead? And Jesus showing, look, I got the scars. They cannot stop me. I've been telling you all. I've been showing you all. Nobody can stop me. Don't y'all remember when I told you that nobody takes my life from me? I'm laying it down. Everything you just witnessed and experienced and what just happened to me happened for your love, and I am unstoppable. Just a few verses earlier, in John chapter 16, Jesus had said this to them. Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. He's talking about this very scene. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. 
In the world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And when the one who has overcome the world comes to you and says, look, guys, they gave me everything they could. Sin teamed up with the devil, and sin and the devil teamed up with death, and they brought it all at me. I took it all on the cross by the sovereign plan of my Father in heaven. They beat me down. They killed me. They buried me in the grave. But look who's back. Look who's standing. Jesus, I'm unstoppable. I'm the conquering God. And I want to tell you something here today. Peace be with you. You think that gave them confidence? Yes. There are Psalms in the Bible where it says, through my Lord, I can run through a brick wall. Through my Lord, I can climb a wall. Through my wall, I can, through, through, through my Lord, I can do anything that God brings at me. Not this like uh, a conquering strength, but this internal peace. This presence of God inside of us that says, no matter what is happening, I know God. Peace be with you. Confidence. He showed them his hands and his side in verse 20. Look what it says next. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Oh, yeah, they were. Number one, composure in the midst of trouble. Number two, confident in the midst of fear. And then number three, commitment in the midst of life's calling. And this is what I really want you to understand. This is where God takes a scenario like peace to you and really applies it to that's who you become, all right? I, I get that all of y'all think, you know, God is, is peaceful. But look what happens next. Jesus says again to them in verse 21, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. So immediately, I mean, it's not like they're about to have a party. It's not like they're about to let their hair down and say, all right, now let's go to the hot tub. Let's go get something to eat. It's not that. The first thing he's saying is, all that y'all just see me experience, now I'm about to give y'all that experience too. Let's go do this. Reach the world. That people would find out that they need help and God's not driving them away, but God is drawing them in. That God provides the help, that he loves his people. He sent his son to die and everybody upon admitting that they need God would find the help they need upon finally admitting that they need peace in their lives would find that Jesus gives it. As the father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. God's way of bringing peace to you is changing you on the inside. If you've not been changed by God, and by that I mean come to know him, repented of your sins, and trusted in Christ, committed yourself to Christ, asked God to forgive you, become a follower. If that's not happened, then you do not know the peace of God. You have examples of peace. You have ideas of peace. You have some experiences with peace. But you do not sense that the peace of God lives and dwells inside of me. That happens when you come to know God. And when you come to know God, he gives the Holy Spirit to you that comes to live inside of you. Now, I understand. A lot of people like the idea of peace, desire for peace, and think, you know, I'm just going to try to be the most peaceful person I can. But as Billy Graham said, if everybody's trying to be peaceful, even in their own best way, that doesn't create peace. Only God does. Here's how. 
God doesn't start with you by making peace with other people. And perhaps here today, that's what you think I've been thinking about. God doesn't start with you to make peace with other people. What God starts with you is making peace between you and him. The Bible wants us to know that we have offended God with our sins, that we have distanced ourselves from God with our sins. And it's upon feeling that burden or that conviction that you and I would finally admit that not only do I need help to get my day going, but I need help in my spiritual life. My spiritual life needs help as well. My spirit needs help as well. And so it's at that point when we would turn to God we would say, God, would you help me? Would you forgive me of my sins? I believe that you died for me. I'm trusting that you did. And in doing that, God then is working peace inside of us. And the only connection that we know about peace in the world is when the peace of God inside of us then begins to overflow outside of us. Christianity is not here today, the Bible is not here today, and we're not here at 413 Fairdale Road, meaning this church and this body of Christ. We're not here because we've got all these solutions on how to be peaceful to everybody else. It's a rough world we live in, and we'll be the first to admit it. And what I might say over here to this crowd, y'all may hate. And what I might say over here to this crowd, y'all may hate, and y'all are gonna eat each other alive if we get talking enough, right? That's the kind of world we live in. What we're trying to get people to see is that we need God. And in needing God, we will cry out to him, and then God gives peace to us, a peace with God. And what we have come to find is that people who have peace with God, in general, become peaceful people. Jesus says in Matthew 5, blessed are the peacemakers. But the peacemakers aren't, there trying to, aren't the ones out there trying to hug everybody and make everybody feel all right. That doesn't get us anywhere. Peace is found when we get peace with God. Jesus shows up in this room and says, peace be with you. And I wanna ask you here today, what do you think? How do you feel? Do you believe? And if you're not sure if the Bible's true or you're not sure you think I'm uh, moving in the right direction with this, I wanna ask you, what else are you gonna try? What else are you gonna try? If Jesus shows up and says, I'm peace, why not go all in on seeing if Jesus brings peace? What we have found is that he does. What we have found is as we have pursued him, as we have turned our lives to him, as we have run to him, crawled to him, on bended knee and bowed heart, God, I need help. God, I need help. God, I need help to be a community citizen in Fairdale. God, I need help to be a husband of Valeria. God, I need help to be a dad to these kids. God, I need help to be a ball coach up here at the Bali. God, I need help to be a friend to my friends. I need help. And the Bible teaches that God helps and he brings peace by making my relationship with God right. And if you don't think that's true, what else are you gonna try? Where's that peace gonna come from? Because I don't see a lot of peace. I do not see a lot of peace. And you don't either. There isn't much. Today I submit to you that the peace we're looking for and the peace we need is only found through Jesus, who loves you and gave himself for you.
And Easter reminds us that he didn't just do a deed of sacrificing himself, that he did a deed of sacrificing himself. He satisfied the wrath of God and he rose again to show it is complete. If you will repent of your sins, ask God to forgive you, turn to him and believe, you will find peace. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the gospel of John and for our time here today. Thank you, Father, for this idea of peace and bringing us to the place where we would admit that we need help. Father, thank you for composure in the midst of trouble, confidence in the midst of fear, and commitment to what you're doing. Father, I pray for those of us here who will admit that peace is hard to find, that we would look to Jesus. Lord, we pray that you would enable that. In Christ's name we pray, amen.